Welcome to Precept Responsibly, a podcast working to make precepting approachable over happy hour. I'm Jason Mordino. And I'm David Hughes. Let's get into some precepting. Hey, listeners, welcome back to another uh, episode of Precept Responsibly. Uh, we hope you had a chance to listen to our last episode. We we're live at uh, MSHP and uh, secretly snuck uh, drinks on stage. Uh, Again. We- <laughs> uh, we hope you, you had a great listen. It was a lot of fun for us, but um, you know, I think you, I know actually today you are going to really enjoy this topic. And, and how I know that is when uh, you know our guests approached us with this idea. A, I had no idea what they were talking about, uh, and then B, as we were exploring what that idea was, I had many like head exploding emoji. Uh, times where i was trying to figure out oh my gosh this like is so applicable to what i talk about or what i think about but i have no words for it and so um i know that many of our listeners are going to have the same kind of uh, experience today and so i'm really excited for you guys to get a chance to uh listen to today's episode so uh, without further ado we'll kick it off uh we'll start with dave what are you drinking i, I know today is a midday recording so i've only got a diet mountain dew uh, Dave, what are you drinking? And then we'll, we'll get our guests in. Caffeine with a little bit more caffeine. That's what I'm drinking at two o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> now, if it's not pre-workout, it is, I have a blueberry vanilla death wish coffee, which is some of the strongest coffee around and it is delicious. What about you? What do you, oh, you just said Mountain uh, Dew. Yeah, I'm, I'm having a diet Mountain Dew, but, um, Let's introduce our guest house, shall we? Yeah, go ahead. All right. Well, without further ado, I'd like to welcome Ryan Bichonor to the pod. Um, Ryan, I'd love for you to tell the listeners what um, a little bit about yourself, your background, your your role in pre in the preceptor world, and ultimately what you've got concocted for this afternoon recording. All right. Thank you very much. And let it, let me just say what a privilege it is to be invited on your podcast. And thank you so much for inviting me on. I Hopefully I can live up to the past guests who have been terrific. Um, so actually I was born in, uh, at Beth Israel, right in Boston, uh, right around the corner from y'all. Um, and my, I, you know, I lived in West Roxbury until I was two and a half. And then my family moved to um, Andover, Massachusetts. That's um, two exits. I, I joke that it's two exits far enough north to avoid the uh, wicked, awesome Tom Brady, you know, Yaki <laughs> accent. Uh, that all my cousins have. Um, and then I did my undergraduate at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. I'm a very loud and proud Badger, mostly the former. Um, I majored in biochemistry and then I, you know, graduated four credits shy of a double major in philosophy, which will always haunt my dreams forever. Um, but at that point, you know, the only classes left for me uh, that would fit for a philosophy major were like studying about Leibniz theory of the universe. And, um, you know, I figured I had, I had better things to do with my senior year, but like, so I've always, but that, how that's relevant to, to this discussion is I've always tended to be interested in the study of how people think and learn. And that curiosity has served me well for, um, my, my precepting. And so I ventured West. I did my farm D at the university of California in San Francisco. I graduated in 2014. And then I matched for residency after that at the UNC Medical Center in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Um, and I did my PGY-1 and PGY-2 there. And then I stayed on for several months into my PGY-2. Um, I, I got recruited to take on what's called the T32 Clinical Pharmacology Fellowship. So it's like a NIH grant-funded fellowship that was sponsored by um, three entities, the, what's called the, well, the, the the UNC Eshelman School of Pharmacy was called the Duke Clinical Research Institute. That's the for-profit arm of the Duke University Hospital. And then um, what's now known as the Dr- Center for Drug Safety Sciences that's operated uh, by the UNC School- Eshelman School of Pharmacy. It's head by a hepatologist by the name of Paul Watkins. And so um, that was two years of fellowship research. Um, you know, I'm a trained pharmacometrician. And after about three or four grants, uh, getting rejected, I, I realized that, you know, tenure track is, is not the track for me. I mean, we, we need professors that are going after NIH grants, but, you know, I, I was tired of, you know, generating a proposal just so I could generate another proposal and generate another proposal. And that wasn't life for me. Um, 
And so, um, you know, I, I, uh, I took a brief job, uh, brief stint as a uh, infusion pharmacist at a Northern California center. And then um, I was recruited back to UC Davis um, by, um, you know, by, 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 you know, my administration team here. And so um, that's sort of my long story. And, you know, it, it's, it's funny that I, I, you know, I know that you've had a bunch of Tar Heels on the podcast. Kamachi was my, you know, outpatient BMC preceptor. Okay. So I'm, I'm one of the outpatient pharmacists, um, clinical pharmacists, clinical oncology pharmacists at, um, at UC Davis. I mostly take care of patients that are prescribed oral anti-cancer therapies, but I'd like to say that I have my, my hand in, in, you know, many pots or so to speak. Mm. Um, and what else? Do you want me to talk about my beer that I have planned? Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay. So, um, so I'm drinking, well, I, so I have this at the back of my fridge, uh, <laughs> Pliny the Elder. Um, it's one of my favorite beers of all time. I, I save one just for this pot. And uh, it's a double IPA. It comes from this uh, Northern California brewery called the, uh, the Russian River Brewery. Um, and I call it a Goldilocks beer. It just has just the right mix of hops and malt and alcohol. And um, Pliny the Elder, you know, it gets its name from this man who lived in Roman times. Um, and, you know, he, he was an author. He was a philosopher. He was a lawyer. He was an army commander. You know, all these Romans, they're all overachievers. Um, and according to the internet, if you believe the Russian River website, he is, uh, he is, he is credited with the first ever documentation of what's now known as the common hop one. So, you know, he wrote this hmm. book and he is, you know, he, he isn't credited with inventing hops, but he is credited with, um, the first ever mention of hops, you know, sort of in, in the written language. Um, and so that is what, I have waiting in store for me at, at five o'clock today. Wow. Trusting the internet. Seriously. <laughs> <laughs> um, so today, I, I think Ryan, what we're going to be talking about a little bit is, um, what are we talking about? Uh, like, I should just throw a jab at you here. Spit it out. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Ryan, what what are what are we talking about today? Maybe in your yeah. terms, like um, what what's the topic? Right. So here's the plan for the day. Um, I I would like to give you know the listeners of uh, a, a brief sense of you know what it is, what, how we define learning in in our clinic, um, and. Th- several steps that you can take um, that, you know, uh, are, can be formulated uh, under, the, under the theory of cognitive load theory and cognitive load management. Um, and so it, it is my hope at the end of this, uh, it, it is my hope that at the end of this uh, podcast, um, you know, the preceptors among us can have um, um, an understanding of what learning is is and how we can um, optimize your learning environment with the use of cognitive load theory. Does that make sense? That does. Yeah, it it does. And and I think like Ryan, when you initially pitched this, and Jason alluded to this before, it was like so mind blowing to me. One because I had never heard of it. But as I as I started reading more and more, I started reflecting and realizing like how impactful this could actually be for for practice and like what this means for for learners. So, I mean, to start us off, like what you had just mentioned, what's your definition of learning? And maybe we can start there and and, and go into these other mindsets and, and get a little bit more complex. All right. Before I do that, um, and then I'll, I'll promise I'll get to that. So I, I would like to start off with a quote. Um, from Nathaniel Brandon, who's like a champion of objectivism. Um, and he's from sort of like the Ayn Rand, you know, the fountainhead series of philosophizers, um, as I like to call them. Um, he is quoted as saying, uh, insight is the first step towards change. So let me repeat that uh, again. Insight is the first step towards change. And so, you know, I take that to mean bluntly, like listening to this podcast by itself um, is unlikely to change your precepting practice. But the hope um, of what I'm trying to accomplish is 
you will come across some piece of information um, that will motivate you to learn and, you know, um, and, and do more in, in this capacity. And so, um, you know, investing time and effort to research and understand best learning practices is the most tangible way to improve, improve your learning experience. And so, um, so, so, you know, we have echoes, uh, eons of data that suggests that, you know, listening to a lecture, uh, you know, is not the most effective tool um, to teach, um, but it's when that lecture, you know, facilitates some sort of passion um, and, you know, you go out and learn yourself. And so, um, so my hope is to, you know, to, if I say something that will trigger something in maybe 10% or 50% of the listeners, um, I will have accomplished my goal. Okay. So how we define learning in our clinic. Um, so learning is technically, the technical definition is the ability to acquire new information and skills and retrieve that information or skill to apply it to a different problem, right? And it's different than retention, right? Because retention is the ability to use information or access information after, you know, significant periods of disuse. And it's different than transfer, right? It's, it, transfer is the, the use of information to solve problems in, in one context that a lot that, you know, arise in sort of a different context. And so I will, I will just state the definition of learning um, for me again. The ability to acquire new information and skills and retrieve that information or apply, um, apply it to a future problem, right? To a problem that hasn't come to our, uh, hasn't come to uh, the, the learner at, at this point themselves. Um, and then at this point, um, you know, I, I would like to call up the, uh, the picture that I sent you in, in terms of getting a general sense of um, theory, a theory of learning as it's, you know, understood, um, you know, to scientists now. And so um, what do you want to do? Like uh, maybe, maybe, you know, uh, pull up on your, on your iPhone or your, whatever your listening device. For our listeners, Ryan, what we'll do is we will take this screenshot it. Uh, we will include it in the show notes and we'll put it on our social media. So if you're listening on your iPhone, just scroll down to the show notes section. There'll be a link you can click in there. Find the information Ryan's talking about right now. This is sort of the modern theory of how humans learn. Um, and there are several activities that you can um, institute in your, um, you know, uh, sort of learning environment to sort of optimize uh, the ways that, that human works. And so several of these I'm going to call out. So goal setting, right, is one that I'm going to talk about. Um, and that allows you to focus your attention in terms of, okay, here's a goal that I would reasonably be expected to perform at the end of this rotation. Um, making connections is a helpful learning activity because it contributes towards encoding and consolidation, right? Testing and receiving feedback also is encoding and, and consolidation. And we're gonna, we're gonna do you know, three minutes on feedback. Um, solving real world problems accesses our brain's ability to retrieval. Um, and so, and then monitoring their thoughts is a helpful activity for also intention and retrieval practices. And so any activity, of these that are listed that you can incorporate into your practice allows learners to better access these um, thinking skills. And uh, you're going to get a, um, a better learning experience out of those, those rotations. So this is going to be sort of the framework on which we'll be discussing. And really what we're going to be talking about is understanding some processes of and examples of different pieces of of the uh, of cognition and thinking and strategizing with your learners and how to assess these in in real time um that's like the most broad level one-liner i think i can come up with and unless jason you can do better than me um but i think it's it's really cool and again this was a foreign concept to me um and i hope a lot of you can take take a lot of ways as as we're going to go through some of the components of what we define as cognitive load 
and ultimately what some of this means in in a layman's terminology. I'm going to take a stab at, at, at I'm going to take a stab at this. It sounds like Ryan, what you're going to do is give us some tips and tricks, some areas to focus to clean out the clutter, so people can uh, learn better, right? With a really an attention on like focus and retrieval. Yeah, that's exactly correct. And you know, I'm going to give sort of three pragmatic pieces of advice. Um, and you know, most of the preceptors that are listening in here um, are probably doing one or two of those. Um, maybe they are doing all three. But um, it, you know, I think it's helpful to have those reinforced by the science um, of, of learning. And it, you know, maybe you're only doing two of them, and um, and you can your your rotation will benefit from incorporation of of the third activity. So yeah, so I'm going to give you know I'm gonna, I'm going to I'm going to speak about cognitive load theory in sort of layman's terms, um, and it, it's exactly as you described. Um, uh, Jason, as you just put it, like, you know, we need to um, be more intentional in terms of how we're um, communicating the information that we want our learners um, to, to, to learn. This was the first, like, thing that really caused my head to explode. Ryan, what is cognitive load theory? And, like, I don't know, listeners, just get ready, listen to this a few times if you need to, and let it sink in. Right. So, so cognitive load theory is sort of ba- built on the premise that the brain can only do so many things at once because short-term memory is limited, right? And so we should be intentional about what we ask it to do, right? So because, you know, it, it's, there is inherent complexity of the work or, uh, of the work that is required by the learners. And the learners may or not be familiar and or proficient with the said work. And so this may, you know, overload the, 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 um, the learners. And so, um, you know, the short-term memory, what's called your working memory is limited and it has the, you know, it has the capability, well, it has the potential to bottleneck itself, right? And so um, learning experience should be designed to reduce sort of the working memory or the load um, in order to sort of promote, you know, scheme acquisition. And so um, it helps under, on us understand why learners and, and health professionals struggle with mastering the complex concepts and developments and, and develop towards expertise. And so, um, so, so basically what we're trying to do is, and I'll define these terms um, for you explicitly, we're, we're trying to optimize germane load, right? We're trying to uh, minimize extraneous load. And then intrinsic load is sort of, there's not too many ways of preceptors ability to um, uh, affect the intrinsic load, but there are a couple. So, and, and these are the three sort of loads of working memory, right? So intrinsic load is defined as um, the inherent difficulty of the task, right? So think of it as the RAM required to run a software, right? So mm-hmm. um, you can you can upload more RAM, right? And but this is like um, this is this is the inherent difficulty of the task. And so intrinsic load can be modified by either um, simplifying the task to be learned or first enhancing the expertise of the learner by providing, you know, um, training and or having the, the learner observe you. And so this is why in, in our clinic, um, some of our AMCARE residents are more proficient than our PGY2 residents because our PGY2 residents, in terms of the oncology residents, have never done an outpatient follow-up call for toxicity management, right? And the AMCARE mm-hmm. residents have done that, you know, for 365 years, 365 days. So that is why, like, the ability of an AMCARE resident to like hit the ground running in our clinic is often far in advance of our PGY2 onks because our PGY2 onks spent the year of uh, PGY1 doing inpatient things. And oftentimes ours is one of the one or two, um, you know, only um, outpatient oncology experience that they'll get other, and the other is infusion. They don't get a lot of patient care. Well, they mm. don't get a lot of patient interaction on, on I think in my head, right, like I, I, I think of this and 
I try to do some some pre-reading on what you you sent me to Ryan and, and my thought is that the the intrinsic load really refers to a number of things like the task itself the complexity that goes into the the task all of the different elements so when I think of like your example of 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 counseling right it's the art of not only counseling but the information you need to do that counseling session the information that kind of all gets inputted and and that in my head makes up what we think of as the intrinsic load. Is that is that right? Right. So now we'll go to extraneous load, right? And that is, is non-essential to the task. So extraneous load includes things like distraction, right? So think of this is RAM taking up, taken up by, you know, programs running in the background, so to speak. Um, and we're looking to reduce this, right? We're looking to reduce any extraneous load that is non-essential to the task. So the way that you can do this is with, with a work guide. Um, and, and I'm going to talk about that in a little bit, but like we don't need our learners to memorize the fax number when we have to fax a patient's labs. Right. Um, so that would be, you know, non-essential to the task of, you know, um, of, uh, of calling a patient and, and doing a tox call. So um, can extraneous load be thought of as like a lot of like, the nuances in pharmacy as well that maybe are things that you'd want to so like for example if i needed to remember all the different formulations of a tki available would you consider that to be like a a for a format of extraneous load where you might not nece necessarily need all of that in that moment of time but it's easily accessible but ultimately it's like the complexity of understand, like you want to focus on the intrinsic load of like how like that dose impacts the patient and not necessarily mm -hmm. what you pull from a, a tertiary source. Am I, am I completely off base? You, you said one thing. So yeah, so that was perfect. You said one thing that I would correct, you know, the, the, the TKI affecting the patient, that's what we want to call germane load. Right. And so I'll, I'll define germane load, um, uh, in a little bit, but so, um, so you're right. And, and, you know, we can have mechanisms by which we, we solve this, right? So Lexicomp is a great example, right? I don't need my learners to study or to memorize uh, or even to learn um, all the different formulations of the TKIs either, you know, let's take the satinum for an example. TKI um, equals yeah, I, tyrosine kinase inhibitor for those uh, non-listeners. Okay, non I had to define that to, because <laughs> you Jason's can see head, my confusion. Jason's head exploded after I said TKI. I think he, mm. he kind of, yeah. <laughs> I mean, a total knock in. I don't know. <laughs> we'll stick to a vasopressor next thinking, time. Yeah, that, that's a good example. And, and, um, and, you know, we don't need learners to, um, to be comfortable conversing in the, you know, because they can look that information up. What we want to, um, we want to optimize is the, um, the the learning ability, and and let's just define it now, um, the germane load, right? And so, germane load is um, it, it's the load that is imposed by the learner's ability, uh, deliberate use of cognitive strategies to facilitate learning. So so you know, schematic uh, and construction. And so it's important to um, recognize that intrinsic load and um, uh, extraneous load are additive, right? So, so let's take for an example, like um, a simple task, right? Um, so that requires, you know, um, that's very um, light in terms of intrinsic load, right? Um, it's not affected by a moderate amount of extraneous load uh, and vice versa, right? Because um, so they're additive. And if something is associated with a, a very high intrinsic load, very complex and very high extraneous load, right? There are a lot of distractors. It's going to be hard for someone to learn from that experience because um, their germane load is essentially being minimized. And so it, it's, it's in this circumstance um, where my feeling is uh, preceptors often get, get caught up and get caught up in having learners do a, comp a complex task with many distractors 
and that minimized the um, the uh, their germane mode. So, uh, Ryan, if I can bring this back to like maybe I don't know a critical care topic. Um, How about you do infectious disease? Fine, I'll do infectious disease because I can wear more than one hat, Dave. Unlike you, uh, who I can have only one talk on hat only. I have one hat and one hat only, Jason. <laughs> um, you know, let's say like like I walk into a sepsis case, right, in the ICU, and uh, the team wants to know which antibiotics to use. The patient's crashing. Like the, I asked the resident to come up with a. Um, you know, therapeutic drug plan for this patient, while at the same time, the nurse is asking for pressers and they've got, um, you know, their on-call pagers going off. Uh, For them, right, they might be able to, in a normal circumstance, sit down and think about, okay, what does the patient have? What's the highest likelihood? What test should I get? Let me create a therapeutic plan around an antibiotic administered, et cetera. But because of the extraneous pieces, the being on call, the chaos in the room, the uh, asks from others, they can't focus on the intrinsic task uh, of learning how to create a therapeutic regimen for a septic patient in that moment. Um, right. Is that a is that a fair example? Right. Yeah. And so you know they're they're germane mode, and we're looking to optimize or maximize the the, the germane mode. And, you know, in in that situation, you know that's a fairly complex task, right? And if he, if a learner, you know, like I imagine that you've done that, Jason. You know, I don't know, eon, you know, thousands of times. Yes. But, um. So yeah. But a brand um, new PGY one. <laughs> brand new PGY one, like I wouldn't expect them to walk right. in the room and be able to do that. Like I, I know right. that, that complexity level is probably way too high for them to be able to manage all of those pieces, or even right. an happy student. And so, <clears throat> right. And so that is an example of yeah. So you've you've had a you you had a boatload of extraneous load, right? The intrinsic load of that is, is sort of moderate or or complex, and so the amount of germane load that is you know, presented itself into that learner, you know, that and, and and can lead to that learner being able to apply those principles to another patient is basically, um, you know, you have two factors working against themselves, uh, working against the learner, and those are additive. And so, you know, that when that learner goes to encounter that for a second time, yes, the intrinsic load will be naturally, you know, less because they have already experienced. So that's a, that's a that's a good example. And so these um, these strategies that I'm going to talk about um, can lead you to more success in um, in terms of the uh, that exact example. Okay. So um, before I move on, maybe what I'll just quickly do is summarize my understanding, just for listeners. Make cool. sure you guys have really yeah. let it sink in. Uh, my understanding is the intrinsic load is the difficulty of the task of learning whatever it is you want to learn, say, uh, dosing meropenem. Extraneous load are the distractions, other pieces of information that that may get in the way uh, of you learning that information. And um, the germane load is like kind of what you have left to physically learn that information. Correct. How, on a day-to-day situation for a learner, can I, as a preceptor, maximize germane load and minimize extraneous load so that people can focus and uh, succeed at learning? You can be intentional about what you ask learners to do, and um, you can set your learners up for success by doing, you know, three strategies. So one is setting goals. Um, and, um, you know, I have, I have a section on that, uh, two is creating a work guide. Some, you know, rotations already, already have that, but I'm reinforcing the, the, the importance of a work guide and I'll define a work guide, um, you know, when I get to it and then setting clear and explicit expectations for the learner and the learning environment. And I will, I will, um, I will give you a little, um, um, you know, hint at, at my philosophy in regards to that. So, so setting goals is the first way, you know, for my learners, when you come on rotation with, with me, 
I have a meeting at the, the beginning of the rotation where, you know, you know, we use these things called SMART goals. I, I've heard, the, I, I imagine that you've heard that acronym, specific, measurable, achievable, relevant, and time-bound. And, um, you know, I find that most learners, you know, benefit from two, maybe three goals. Um, and most learners require two shots at it, right? They either struggle with the, the objectivism, like I want to learn about oral drugs on this rotation. Well, you know, I, there's no way to measure, you know, unless I can get into your brain, there was no way to measure that objective, right? And it's not time bound, right? So, so a good example is by the end of the first, the fourth week of the rotation, I want to be able to counsel a patient from start to finish on a new HMA venetic clocks without help from my preceptor, right? I can measure that. It's time bound. It's relevant, right? And so, um, I, you know, so, 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 but in order for it to be that feedback, it has to be related to a goal of therapy. And so most learners, uh, as I mentioned before, benefit from like two, maybe three goals. At UC, da UC Davis, we have this thing called, you know, case conference where I imagine you have this um, as well, but um, where the PGY2 onks present and teach a case, you know, they came across. And so an easy goal for all my PGY2s is find a patient that you've encountered in your, you know, clinic dealings with us and present them at case conference, right? So that's, you know, and by the fourth week of the rotation, right? So I, I, I always want that time bound, um, you know, um, category in there. Um, you know, my goal is to uh, you know, find a patient to present the case conference. And I think that um, can facilitate learning in addition to, um, in addition to, oh, an evaluation. So feedback and evaluation, both of those are, are important uh, for, for, you know, optimizing learning. But um, I, I feel as though, unless it's decided on, upon at the start, uh, most preceptors are just doing an evaluation. Does that make sense? Mm, absolutely. Uh, Ryan, if I had to put this towards like the, um, your uh, cognitive load theory, right? It sounds like what you're using is SMART goals to focus people's attention, which goes back to that kind of uh, learning cycle you were showing there. Um, focus right. people's attention on like what's really important in the broader sense, right? Not a specific activity, but in the broader sense of your entire rotation, let's focus in on these things for you to brush away the extraneous load so you can focus on the tasks that you want them to be, or the smart goal that you want them to be effective at, is is that how you would kind of think about using goals in the like cognitive load theory model? Right. So yeah. So so goal setting is very important to you know um, for learning, and it, you you hit the nail on the head. Focus attention, right? Um, and the ability to test and receive feedback that relates to you know the the. Uh, scientific understanding of encoding and consolidation. So it leads to, it, it, it's hitting on two factors of, of learning. Awesome. Outside of uh, setting SMART goals, uh, Ryan, what do you think is like another way for us to uh, clean people's plates for adequate learning? So, uh, it, you know, most, I imagine that most preceptors listening to this um, already have some form of this, but it's called a work guide. And we provide this to all of our residents and students that come on rotation with us. It has information um, that is relevant to learning, but um, you can, you know, um, you can sort of look that up um, at your later at, at later date. So it has an overview of our workflow, how we work up patients. It has relevant phone numbers. It has how to page a physician, how to page a physician, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So this, um, you know, with this, um, it hits on two sort of um, features of cognitive load theory. One, it, it, it a little bit um, uh, reduces the intrinsic, you know, load that's, um, that's required of learners because it makes the, uh, task um, simpler, right? And then two, um, it allows that information um, to be, you know, that extraneous load, that information that is non-essential to the task of learning, right? 
to be sort of forgotten from the um, from the working memory, right? Because um, you can just always look that up. And so, um, in the same way you can look up, uh, you know, TKI formulations. Um, this is, you know, what I would what I recommend. And I, m- I imagine most preceptors, I, like uh, Jason. I wonder, do you have a a work guide or something similar that you provide, you know, to learners? Um, it's varied over the years, but, uh, when I was heavily involved in direct patient care, I had like anything and everything you could imagine about like how to communicate best with the providers versus pharmacy versus like the technicians, how to identify, how to identify missing meds. Like some of the things that were just like, they're operationally important, but at the end of the day, the learner doesn't need to like learn how to find Boston medical centers, missing meds. Like, yes, my nurses need to figure that out and you should learn how to do it at any org, but like, that's not what I want you to learn. It's what I want you to be able to do quickly so you can get back to learning. Um, so yeah, I, as a clinician, had lots of those things. As a manager, I have not spent as much time investing in that as I probably should, but there are a key couple tasks, like um, I have a KPI, uh, key performance index task that I have all of my learners do, very detailed instructions on like what to do from top to bottom on updating some of these educational KPIs. Um, but I think, yeah, go ahead. Use. I, I was going to say, I think like for me, right. I'm, I'm, I'm interpreting this as a lot of like keeping like some form of peripheral brain, right? Like, and some may say, right. Like I, I have some preceptors may say, Oh, I, I have a syllabus that includes a lot of this. Well, the problem with syllabus, right. Is like, we all have them, but they are usually lengthy. They can't be accessed very easily. Right. Like when I think of this, I think of like a one page handout that you can stick in your lab code or, or even like an index card that has like the quick and dirty of like, I can reference this, this guide or this uh, index card very quickly and be able to deliver and, and like pull that information. Similarly with like this whole concept of like, I always called it one of my, one of my very first ICU preceptors, Ed Timmy, he told me you need a peripheral brain. It's impossible to, to dive everything in the ICU. So, right. You had a card on like vasopressors and like, what are the doses? What are the things? What receptors does it hit? Right. Like those are things that like you just have to be resourceful. And and this is where where my head goes with this work guide of like, right, creating a very structured, easily accessible, pointed direction for your learner. Is that fair, yeah, Ryan? Actually, yeah, I'll do one better. Ours is a PowerPoint, right? So we send these written, you know, like how to how to get a med to a VA patient. I can tell you, I, I have done that maybe, maybe like 40,000 times and I still <laughs> pull up that slide. I still pull up that slide and say, okay, what am I, what am I doing? So, um, so yeah, I don't know. I need, I don't need to, you know, memorize that information. Um, and, and so any effort that you can give it, and, you know, PowerPoint slide it is, you know, because oftentimes that's a good way to collect you know, categories of information and store them. And so um, actually one time uh, someone deleted like the, the hard drive that we saved that, that that folder on. And so like, it was like, it caused us to go into like a full-fledged and uh, full, full-fledged uh, panic uh, in regards to <laughs> uh, somebody deleted the, 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 you know, the, the work guide, but yeah, we got it back eventually. Um, and so, yeah, so, so that would, I mean, um, that is a creative strategy for, um, for, for that. but you know, if, um, if, you know, if PowerPoint really doesn't work for your practices, then, then, you know, a word document or, or something to sort of reduce, um, the extraneous load on your learners. Yeah. And I, I, I appreciate all of that. Um, Ryan. So it sounds like there's a lot of like point of direction, you know, right? Like the whole concept, right? Reducing these loads to really focus in on the germane load, things like creating work guides, setting expectations, um, and a lot of the key tidbits you talked about to really focus in on how to maximize learning and, and not overcome demand. And a whole nother, uh, a whole nother conversation. I read an interesting article in this topic of how machine learning helps augment this. Um, and how we can be using clinical decision support to to leverage some of these things, a whole other conversation. Whoa. But you're sticking like Pfizer rep. Oh, Jesus. You're going to throw plugs at me too. You know, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Ryan. Thank you. You know, I put that one right up on a T for whoever wanted that one. No, but 
like it in all in all honesty, I, I think like it's it's all really interesting and, and a really cool concept to really synthesize and to think about and something our listeners are probably not going to wrap their head around in the immediate right one time listening and they're they're pros at all of these different theories, but really understanding the foundation and maybe doing some of these reading and thinking about some of the concepts that we we talked about here. One thing I as a takeaway for listeners, Dave, before you jump into your yep. thing is um, the the thing that I think really like got me thinking about this is like start thinking about what are the things that like your learners don't need to learn, but they spend so much time on. I'm sure you can come up right. with a list of 10, 15, 20 different activities that you could really try to focus on minimizing that. Uh, either shaving off some intrinsic load or minimizing extraneous load on, on 15 to 20 tasks. And, and quickly, I think you can start to see the value of thinking like you're a learner um, because it, it kind of brings you back to your days of the first time you had to learn it. And that's always one of the hardest things as someone who's been doing this for 5, 10, 15 years is thinking about, well, what do I just know how to do that they don't? And have to break down those pieces, and and it can be a really great thought experiment to use this model to break those down. Um, so I, I challenge our listeners to do that. Tag us on Twitter with with what things you've come up with, and and we'll be certainly happy to continue that conversation. Dave, you are but, about you to know, loop into something else. No, I mean the moment of truth that I that I really want that Ryan kind of put to me and, and queued up for me is in our last few minutes, Ryan. Um, you put something of the Sesame Street theory of precepting. Um, and I am more than curious of what that is. All right. So I've always wanted to ter- uh, coin a term in pharmacy. And, you know, I, 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 I gave this, I, I, I presented this term, I think I did a grand rounds on clinical precepting, maybe in 2021, and it didn't catch on then. So hopefully <laughs> we'll catch on now. So I'm going to talk for five minutes about Sesame Street, and then I promise I will, I'll bring it back. So you know, what the showrunners of Sesame Street were trying to do is they were trying to create a literal pandemic of reading, right? And since it's airing, Sesame Street has been subject to the more academic scrutiny than any TV show in history, right? It's, it's always proved to increase the learner learning and reading of the viewers. In fact, it spread, you know, it's, it's infectious spread has been, you know, they are not, uh, if you're, if you're thinking of COVID, is, is so high that in, in, you know, reading and learning actually increased in houses that didn't even watch the show, right? And so you may be thinking like, well, it had something to do with the engaging nature, uh, engaging nature of the characters on the show, right? The animals of Sesame Street were responsible for successes. And, and there was so much research that went into the development of that show that it actually had nothing to do with the, you know, the, the characters themselves. So this guy named Ed Palmer was, was the head, you know, uh, you know, he's this guy from Oregon. He's a psychologist from Oregon. He was head of research of Sesame Street. He used this distractor test, right? So it was a slideshow of pictures running next to the skits that would, they would plan to air on Sesame Street. And it sh- would show things like a race car, a windmill, and, um, and they measured this thing called ocular gaze, right? So it, it, when kids looked away from you know, the show, um, and you know, that, that meant that the show was less engaging. And so they tabulated this you know, measurement and they aimed for 80, over 80%, right? And that led to them getting rid of Four skits, um, they have them simplifying the dialogue, they them capping, you know, skits that four minutes max. And so, you know, it didn't really have the success of Sesame Street didn't really have anything to do with the characters on the show or their intrinsic value in terms of their teaching ability. But this product was deliberately and painstakingly engineered, right? And so, so the Sesame Street theory of precepting goes to something like this. Um, everyone knows of this rotation or these rotations where the rotation's quality is naturally linked to the preceptors. Like I imagine like you just hearing me say that, you know, you're thinking of, okay, those preceptors, that rotation has these preceptors and they're just, you know, natural teachers or great preceptors. And the, the, they, you're attributing the success and the strength of those that rotation to the preceptors, right? Mm. And so 
the, the theory uh, in layman's terms is quality precepting and learning experience are less a product of natural teachers, right? Or, or great preceptors, which is kind of fixed mindset approach. So like, I, I don't know if you've ever heard of this, this Stanford psychologist named Carol Dweck. She, she wrote a book called Mindset. Um, mm-hmm. And I can, I can do another podcast on mindset because it's fantastic. But, um, <laughs> that is sort of like a fixed mindset approach. Like quality precepting is, is, you know, I can't be a quality preceptor because, you know, you know, X, Y, and Z, you know, Jason and, and, and Husey um, are just sort of natural teachers or great preceptors. And so that's sort of fixed mindset. So they are more, so they, the quality rotations are more a product of the learning environment being optimized um, to the learner's ability to, um, you know, learn. And in this way, any preceptor, right, which is a growth mindset approach, but any preceptor is capable of having one of those great rotations if you work on and optimize the learning environment. Does that make sense? That makes total sense. I uh, actually, as you were talking about this, I was thinking like, yeah, I know like two or three or four preceptors that just like naturally like, I think naturally get there. But like, as I'm like reflecting, they've actually been former guests on here and they talk a lot about I tried this. It didn't work. I tried something different. That didn't work. I tried the third thing that didn't work. I tried the fourth thing. And it's like this like relentless pursuit of like improvement in their precepting, knowing that like, yeah, my first time wasn't that great. And it's gotten better and better and better. And yeah, five years in, they seem like the natural preceptor. But I I think that's a great point, Ryan, that like designing your environment gets a long way. Maybe we coined the term and precept responsibly. And <laughs> but then we take away the Sesame Street theory of precepting. Yeah, but then, but then, but then, uh, <laughs> Sesame Street will probably have something to say about that. <laughs> um, I don't know. I worry if we try to take it, Dave, it might end up being like the the Oscar the Grouch theory of precepting. <laughs> mm. <laughs> well, you can have it. You can have it because it didn't it didn't catch on. You know, last night, last time I I presented it, but um, yeah, we you know and. and we we should term it the the beach north street theory of precepting. Okay. <laughs> well, you said it, not me. <laughs> Ryan, in our in our last few minutes, and we always ask our listeners one last question: What is one thing you've taken from a past preceptor um, that you'd like to share with our listeners here today? Yeah, um, I had a great answer from this because I prepared in advance because I listen to all your pods. So um, there's a pharmacist by the name of Tina Brock, and she is one of the associate deans of education at um, SCAGS and, and School of Pharmacy in Denver. And she's she's really one of my most trusted mentors. I look up to her in, in so many different ways. And, you know, somebody should write a biography about her. Or maybe she'll do an autobiography. She's, she's, she's had, you know, this tremendous career. She did her pharmacy training at Ole Miss, but I think she has some sort of crazy degree, like German from, from Old Miss, and she did a <laughs> master's in pharmacy, and she did a doctorate in education at, um, at UNC, but she's also involved in, you know, global pharmacy practice. I think she lived in London, and then I, I believe I met her after her stint in London, because she was a professor of mine at UCSF. Um, I, I may have the dates wrong about this, but she, she says, um, and I've stolen this for, for, from her in, in my lectures to the residents, but she says that you know, the three keys to success, um, and you only have to do two of these three, right, is show up on time, have a positive attitude, and do good work. And so you only have to do two of these. So, and, and the theory goes, if you show up on time, and you always have a positive attitude, people will forgive you for not always doing stellar work, right? Or if you show up on time, and you always do good work, right? People forget some, you know, you're, you're not, you know, always the most positive person in the room. <laughs> and, you know, or if you have a positive attitude about your work and you always do good work, you know, people will generally speaking forgive you if you're not, you know, uh, uh, sort of on time. And so most learners and most trainees, um, I feel are so stuck on, you know, the doing of good work. Um, and I would say 50% of the time, that's the issue, but 50% of the time it has to do with one of the, one of the two factors. And so, you know, 
her theory is if you can just focus on doing two of these things really well, you know, showing up on time, I mean, that is an expectation that I have of my learners. And, and I, if, I'm, if I'm scheduled to be somewhere, I'm 10 minutes early. And if you're five minutes early, then you're late, in my opinion. <laughs> um, so, so, but yeah, if you focus on, and, you know, oftentimes, I mean, it's great to shoot for, um, for you know, all of those. But oftentimes, what will lead you to success if you can focus on accomplishing at least two of those? Um, I don't know if you agree. Uh, definitely agree. Um, except for the timeliness thing. I'm a big fan of being on time. <laughs> I, I definitely hear what you're saying. And um, to to find out that this came from Tina Brock is uh, unsurprising. Dr. Brock has shown up in so many questions I have posed or ideas that like I'm uh, evaluating, come to find out Dr. Brock's involved in it in some way, shape or form. She really, she's like everywhere in pharmacy. Um, but I, I think that's definitely great advice, Ryan. And, and thank you for sharing. Okay. Um, well, Ryan, thank you so much for a great discussion on, uh, you know, learning kind of some techniques for, for um, leveraging the cognitive load theory to think about how do we improve precepting um, and explaining the cognitive load theory. I got to be honest, like still wrapping my head around it. I loved it. I, I really um, great episode. I hope our listeners get a bunch out of it, can think about it, really start um, kind of continuing the conversation. If anyone wants to continue this conversation online, Ryan, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Um, my I'm, I'm my preceptor profile is um, you know at the UT Davis website, and so uh, email me. Email, great. If uh, if they like Twitter, are you open to Twitter conversations? Yeah, yeah. What's your What's your Twitter handle? Uh, R Farm D. R Beachnor Farm D. All right, we'll make sure it's in the show notes too. Um, with Thanks that, again. Ryan, I, I, I can't thank you enough again. As always, it's always fun having other oncology pharmacists on. Um, but overall, for our listeners, I hope this was helpful and, and um, you have some chance to reflect on some of this material and, and start applying it to your practice. So with that, thank you all and uh, until next time. Hope you all enjoyed today's episode. We thank you for listening. Uh, I just want to remind people, if you have an idea for an episode or you want to drop an audio comment or question, uh, you know, record yourself 30 seconds uh, on your phone. Send it to us uh, at preceptresponsibly at gmail.com. We also are on social media, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. Find all of our episodes on your favorite podcast providers. We also have these as videos on YouTube. Today's episode was produced by Spencer Sutton. Music by Alex Grohl. That's it for Precept Responsibly. I'm Jason Mordino. And I'm Dave Hughes. Until next time, thanks all for listening. You can, you can say whatever you want and you're not going to offend me. Um, people have tried to offend me on this on, on this, and, and they have yet to succeed. I don't know. I think the fellowship one cut pretty close to the bone. Yeah, well, the fellowship one was just like a dagger and dagger over and over and over. And it's like, man, when are you guys going to get some new new stuff at me? Ooh, all right. That was a good dig at us.